We've got a great plenary panel now, uh, led by my, my good friend and, and former co-worker Matt Abel uh, from the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. This is particularly uh, going to be fun because this is actually going to be a live podcast of the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast that NCSEA does. This is number 68, episode 68 of the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Clean listeners, welcome to the 68th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. On today's episode, we're back at the State Energy Conference for their 2022 edition. However, this time we're live and in person. This year, we were asked to join as a keynote session where we hosted a fireside chat with some of our favorite energy reporters to talk about the top stories of 2021 and what they're covering in 2022. But as always, before we get into the details, we've got a few updates to share. On our last episode, we provided a short update on the carbon plan proceedings, along with some of NCSEA's concerns about the process to date. Well, we've got some new updates on the carbon plan coming out of this week's State Energy Conference. Our friend John Downey with the Charlotte Business Journal broke the news earlier this week that Duke Energy is planning to release a draft carbon plan on May 16th with multiple scenarios designed to meet the carbon mandates established by the legislature last year. More specifically, Kendall Bowman, Duke's VP of Regulatory Affairs, told John that they're planning to present two approaches, which would include meeting the goals within the established time period, or another approach which would be more delayed with the inclusion of offshore wind in advanced nuclear technologies. In total, there will be eight scenarios proposed by Duke, which may provide some flashbacks for our listeners to the last IRP filings by Duke, which outlined six different scenarios that all incorporated various levels of new natural gas generation and other technologies such as solar and storage. Aside from the comments made by Kendall at this week's State Energy Conference, we don't have much additional insight as to what might be included in the plan, but as soon as it's filed, we'll be sure to provide an update to our listeners here. And coming up for our listeners in the western part of the state, NCSEA is hosting our Clean Energy in the Mountains event at Highland Brewing Company in Asheville, where the topic of conversation will be focused on HB 951 and the preceding implementation efforts. We'll be featuring a panel of expert speakers, followed by roundtable conversations to directly engage in conversation on each of the provisions in the bill. And of course, we'll have plenty of time set aside to meet and network with fellow attendees. More information will be included in a link in today's show notes. Okay. On to the show. Clean energy. Clean energy. On today's episode, I am so excited to feature a number of reporters who we've had on in the past and have featured stories from previously. Each of them provides a unique perspective to the clean energy industry from their various levels of reporting nationally, regionally, and locally, as you'll hear in their comments shortly. As a reminder, today's episode was recorded live in front of the entirety of this year's State Energy Conference, so the audio may sound a little different than usual, but nonetheless, still is compelling. Okay, and with that, let's get into today's episode and jump right into the conversation. 
in case you haven't read the agenda and figured out what we're doing here for lunch, we are recording a live session of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Typically, uh, we produce these episodes in my home basement studio where I'm talking to just one person individually, but now have the chance to key you all in on to how the podcast is produced uh, and you get to see how we make the podcast and ship it out to listeners all across the country and the world. We have listeners that tune in from as far as the UK, Finland, Germany, all over the world. And so on today's episode, uh, we're going to have a conversation with a few uh, very special guests, a few folks that you've probably heard from and read their reporting before, uh, both here within the region and regionally and at the national level. Uh, so I'm really, really excited to, to talk more about the stories they're reporting on here in 2022 and the stories that we covered last year. There's been a lot, as Steve has alluded to, uh, that we've been covering in this space. Uh, but before we get to that, I want to tell you a little bit more about the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast itself. So for those who haven't tuned into it before, it's a bi-weekly podcast in which we talk more about policy and market updates, specifically in the clean energy space. We have featured guests like the governor and recently NCDEQ Secretary Elizabeth Beiser, along with NBA All-Star David West, and then former NCDEQ Secretary and EPA Administrator Michael Regan. So we've had uh, quite the guest list. So if you have not had a chance to listen to the episodes of the Squeaky Clean podcast, I'd encourage you to subscribe. Uh, and listen on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, anywhere where you get your podcasts. Uh, and a few of the, the topics that we've covered over the past year include things like HB 951, all of the offshore wind developments that we've seen here in the state of North Carolina. We've talked a lot about net metering, and we've also talked about uh, quite a few executive orders, such as 246, signed by Governor Cooper. And we've also talked about infrastructure funding. So we've heard about a number of these topics here this morning during our first keynote and throughout some of the sessions. Uh, and we'll hear a little bit more about some of those from our journalists here. So uh, with that being said, I'd like to go ahead and introduce our first journalist to talk more about what she's covering. Uh, and so our first person joining us here is Catherine Morehouse, who is a federal energy reporter with Politico. Uh, Catherine with Politico, uh, covers FERC, DOE, and the NRC, and she previously is, probably most folks in here have read her uh, stories and reporting, uh, was at Utility Dive, where she covered federal policy. Uh, so I'm really, really excited to introduce Catherine to tell us a little bit more about what she's been covering over the past year or so. Yeah, thanks, Matt, and thanks, everyone, for having me. Uh, it's great to be in North Carolina. It was one of my favorite uh, states to cover when I was at Utility Dive, so really, really interesting place in terms of energy policy. Uh, what I cover now, what my beat is essentially focused on, is the power grid and policies around the power grid. And under the Biden administration, what that means oftentimes is thinking about, you know, what are the little rules and changes or big rules and changes that could prohibit or help the Biden administration reach its uh, goals of creating a 100% carbon-free grid by uh, 2035. Obviously a really ambitious goal. Uh, so it's a lot to think about. Um, but one of the agencies that has the potential to have the most impact on that goal is FERC, uh, which is the agency I primarily cover. Uh, so I'll run through a couple of, of high-level things that, that FERC is looking at right now that are really important. Um, one proposal that was in front of FERC that actually passed by default this fall, uh, maybe some of you have heard of it, is the Southeast Energy Exchange Market. 
And that proposal was uh, brought forward by utilities in North Carolina and elsewhere uh, in the southeast to basically create more efficiencies between these utilities and uh, you know, save customers money and that kind of thing. But kind of the debate over that policy, which Matt and I have talked about before, turned into a little bit more of what's the best, what is the best model to, you know, bring clean energy online? Should we be instead thinking about opening up the Southeast to more competition? Uh, so the debate around that was really interesting and it's a debate I'm continuing to follow uh, because like I said, this proposal actually passed by default. So we'll talk a little bit more, but FERC was tied 2-2 at the time and now it's a, now we're, uh, now we have all five commissioners. Uh, another thing at FERC is Order 2222, which is essentially an order uh, aimed at lowering barriers to distributed energy resources like energy efficiency and thinking about how to better uh, compensate those resources onto the grid. And then two of the biggest decisions that FERC is also making uh, concern pipeline uh, permitting as well as transmission policy. So thinking about, you know, how do we... Uh, plan for and create a grid that can hold the amount of renewables we need if we're going to decarbonize by 2035, uh, as well as, you know, kind of rethinking their pipeline permitting policy, which uh, has, that, that one's been a little more controversial with everything happening in Europe. I think uh, pipelines are, are a tough topic politically right now, but uh, I'll stop there. Great. Thanks, Catherine. And we'll, we'll dive into a few of those topics here in, in just a minute with some of the questions that we have. Um, but our next reporter is Elizabeth Utz, uh, a reporter with Energy News Network, uh, a name that probably most folks here in the room recognize as she's done quite a bit of reporting on North Carolina clean energy related news over the past few years. Uh, so Elizabeth herself has been steeped in North Carolina energy and environmental policy for over two decades, uh, first as an advocate and organizer and now as a journalist for the Energy News Network where she's worked since 2016. She's here in Raleigh and covers state clean energy transition in many facets, from high-level battles at the General Assembly uh, to obscure commission establishing building codes uh, to the variety of North Carolinians that make up the state's clean energy economy. Elizabeth. Thanks, Matt, um, and thanks for having me here to discuss some of my reporting. Uh, just in these opening remarks, I'll focus on uh, 951. I feel bad for whoever drafted the title of that bill, because none of us know what it is, but we just call it 951. I think it's something about energy solutions. Um, but certainly that'll be a big topic that I'll cover this year. And really the heart of that law is a carbon plan that requires Duke to cut its carbon emissions 70% by uh, 2030 and then to net zero by 2050, um, and the draft of that plan is due in the middle of next month. Um, that's something that Duke will submit, and then there'll be a lot of debate and fighting, I'm sure, uh, till the end of the year when the plan is supposed to be finalized. And um, if past plans that Duke has presented to cut its carbon emissions by 70% by 2030, reflected in its uh, most recent um, IRP, its 15-year resource plan, it, you know, it's certainly possible that they could um, plan to build a bunch of new natural gas in the short term to meet that 70% reduction goal and then try and make up the difference and get to net zero with small modular nuclear reactors and uh, carbon capture technology um, in the long term. And so um, I think several of the, some of the clean energy advocates at least are kind of 
preparing for that, that kind of possibility, kind of girding themselves for that, the worst, so to speak, when it comes to clean energy. And so they'll be, um, uh, they're, again, they're sort of girding themselves for battle in order to try and get more clean energy um, into the plan, more, more solar, more wind, um, by the time the, the plan is finalized. Um, one other thing I'll note that is uh, something the Utilities Commission has already uh, part of 951 implementation that the Utilities Commission has, has made a decision on is the uh, performance-based rate making that is, is part of 951. Um, Duke, will, um, Duke has the opportunity to submit a plan, uh, to, to submit a proposal for multi-year rate making um, before the carbon plan is established. And so there's a... Um, Again, some worry from advocates that they, they may submit that plan and, and they'll have to weigh that with the carbon plan considerations. I'll also, though, say that the uh, commission discouraged Duke from submitting an application for, for multi-year rates and said didn't preclude them from submitting that application, but did say they would be unlikely to act on it until after the carbon plan. So that's a, a bit of a mouthful. And then I would just note that um, there's a couple of, perhaps we can, in the Q&A, we'll also talk about some of the things I'll be um, paying attention to in the General Assembly as well. We do have a short session coming up, so that'll be another thing. Thanks, Elizabeth. And uh, yeah, some, the, the carbon plan is something that uh, our organization, and I know many others, are, are tracking fairly closely. So we'll be uh, very interested to read more about your reporting on that coming up in the next month or so. All right, and our last reporter joining us on the panel this morning is David Borax, who's a climate change veteran journalist with WFAE, NPR affiliate down in Charlotte. So David is a veteran journalist who covers climate change for WFAE. You've probably heard his voice on the radio. He also has covered housing and homelessness, energy and the environment, transportation and business. And before WFAE from 2006 to 2015, uh, David published the online community news network, davidsonnews.net, and corneliusnews.net while working as a weekend host at WFAE. So David, tell us a little bit more about what you've been covering over the past year or so. Yeah, thanks Matt. And uh, I'm very fortunate to uh, be covering climate change full-time at a small newsroom like WFAE. We have just really a half dozen full-time reporters plus a lot of other staff who do different things. But uh, last year we received uh, a grant from a couple of family foundations here in North Carolina that we're passionate about climate change, and that came together with our desire to try and improve coverage at the local level. The idea is that there's a lot of climate change coverage at the national and global level, but not so much uh, telling people what's going on in their own backyard. And so uh, these folks and WFAE came together to try and see if we can make that happen. I do cover energy and policy, many of the same things that Elizabeth has been covering, a little bit of what Catherine does. Um, uh, but I also cover a lot of other things. I mean, I'm telling stories that help bring home the impact of climate change in our state and our region. I also tell uh, the stories behind the, re the reasons why we need to do an energy transition in the first place. Um, you know, and I'm going to tick off some of the topics. We can go into more detail. But um, I do cover the economic development aspects of uh, the transition that many people have been talking about this morning. I've covered the wood pellet industry, which is a uh, a big deal in... Europe, it's used as a fuel in place of coal there. It's also 
primarily supplied from the southeastern United States right now, and there's a debate on both sides of that about whether it's a good transition fuel or not, or whether it's an environmental justice problem. Um, I'm covering an, another natural resource, which you may be familiar with, is lithium. Uh, lithium is, uh, there's a, a vein of lithium that runs just west of Charlotte, and it's one of the richest sources of lithium in the world. It's hard to get at because it requires hard rock mining. Um, and there are two different companies now that are looking at uh, either restarting or starting new mines there to take advantage of the, the, the lithium rush that's coming uh, because of electric vehicles and batteries. Um, I do color, cover solar and wind. Um, electric vehicles is a big part of my beat. Um, I cover Duke and Dominion Energies as companies uh, as well as, um, as those that are helping to carry out this transition. Uh, I cover climate and environmental justice. Um, and uh, there's a lot going on in so many of these that I can talk about, but maybe I'll just mention a couple of things. On the, the story about how climate change is affecting us, um, I've done things like go out to the coast to interview members of the Gullah Geechee community in South Carolina to look at how their lives are changing and how their livelihoods are changing because of climate change, uh, sea level rise, warmer temperatures, and that sort of thing. Um, I met a bait fisherman um, at St. Helena Island who has seen the shrimp and mullet that he uses for bait fish uh, just decline in population. It says it used to be able to go out um, and it would take him an hour to get his day's supply and he has to do it several hours now. So that, that's the example of a, a kind of story that sort of, sort of tells how it's affecting us. Um, I also did a story recently about sea level rise and beach erosion. Um, you know, we, we love our beaches here in the Carolinas, and uh, every year, somewhere along the coast, there are multiple projects pumping sand up onto the beaches. In fact, they're going on right now to get us all ready for our summer beach season. Um, is that sustainable? Um, I went out to visit a couple of projects that are going on, and I actually had an Army Corps of Engineers uh, project manager tell me that he doesn't know how much longer we're going to be able to uh, justify this financially, because it's getting more and more expensive, and I can, I'd love to talk about that. Um, I also uh, cover how uh, cities and counties and the state are uh, uh, adapting to climate change and the policies that they're coming up with. Um, you know, there are climate plans all over this uh, place right now that are in effect, and we're, we're trying to figure out the execution piece of it. And Matt, we can talk more about that one as well. Um, and I, I try to keep track as well of adoption of new technologies, um, you know, both on the energy side and EVs. I, I, I like to write about EVs as often as I can because they get the highest hits on our website for some reason. Um, you know, and that has something to do with the fact that like three quarters of us in surveys say that we think our next car will be an electric vehicle. And there's so much that goes into that. Um, in fact, I did a, a two-part podcast series about EVs and it was really just a what do you want to know about EVs? All the stupid questions that people have as they're trying to decide whether to adopt an EV. So that gives you just a flavor of what I'm doing. Um, I am more of a, a wide net casting uh, sort of journalist as opposed to a deep dive on things. Although I try to make, when I do drop in on a topic, I try to make it a deep dive. Thanks, David. And uh, I think as, as everybody gets the sense, there are so many facets within the, the clean energy industry. And part of the reason why we, we picked each of you to join us on the panel is I think each of you are covering very different aspects of the clean energy industry itself um, from the federal level down to the very local level and telling those individual stories, David, as you alluded to. And, and kind of to add on to your last point about EVs, it's more and more exciting that North Carolina is playing a larger role 
in the manufacturing of those electric vehicles here in the state, as a number of news stories that you all have written over the past few months have alluded to, including the relocation of a number of new uh, companies to the state, like Toyota and their battery manufacturing facility, and recently with VinFast here in RTP. So uh, lots of really exciting developments on the electric vehicle front. All right, so uh, for the next section of our panel here today, we're gonna have a few questions that I'll be asking each of you. Uh, about some of your reporting more specifically. Uh, but then after we make it through this a little bit, we'll have some time for audience Q&A. So in, in just a few minutes, uh, we'll ask folks in the audience if you have any questions for our reporters to step up to the mics that we have at the side of the room uh, for an opportunity to ask your own questions and be a part of this episode of the podcast. All right, so my first question is for Catherine, uh, specifically about FERC. We've seen two recent appointments to the commission by President Biden with Chairman Glick and Commissioner Phillips. Uh, now that the commission is fully staffed, what does the overall dynamic look like and how do you expect them to approach the topic of renewables in general? Yeah, thank you so much for the question. Chairman Glick, I think, has been from the start very a very ambitious chairman and they FERC has a really big agenda in part because there are a lot of things that uh, Chairman Glick wants to get done. In the fall, we saw that FERC was really sharply divided on some of its most critical issues, uh, including on the Southeast Energy um, Exchange Market proposal uh, that we discussed where they, you know, they ultimately tied on, on this vote, which allowed it to pass by default, but you know, long story short, that's not uh, super durable. Uh, way to pass a rule and it still may be subject to challenges in the future. So the appointment of Commissioner Willie Phillips was a really big deal for the commission because it, it, it you know, guaranteed that at least if something's going to pass, it, it will pass. You know, it won't, it won't be tied in, in this weird kind of default limbo state. Um, but what we saw actually with one of the biggest votes that the commission took recently was even, even a 3-2 is is maybe not the most durable uh, way to pass something. So uh, on this pipeline issue, FERC has basically been accused uh, for years of rubber stamping pipelines and not really taking a very critical look at that infrastructure. Um, and they, they suffered a series of court blows where the court basically said, FERC, you're not really doing your job here. So they decided to revisit this. Uh, so they passed this policy three to two that set a greenhouse gas uh, thresholds that would trigger further environmental review, and it just it it took environmental justice more into account. Uh, but this policy passed three to two, and there was, given I think the, again, like I said, the tensions in in Eastern Europe and all of that, there was really severe blowback on this policy. And you know, since then, I think FERC has realized that they might need to get more consensus on these policies. So fast forward to last month's meeting, or this month's meeting actually, and FERC uh, passed a transmission uh, reform policy that actually passed four to one. And I think that there is definitely consensus that transmission is the most important thing that FERC can do to uh, accelerate the deployment of renewables. We have 1,300 gigawatts of renewable energy stuck in the queue waiting to connect to the grid. Um, and how FERC approaches reforming the nation's uh, transmission infrastructure and how we plan for it and how we pay for it, that, that is the thing that will un, you know, unclog that queue immediately and also allow for 
a brand new generation of more renewables and, and basically allow uh, the grid to, to be decarbonized. Um, so I think it is really promising, long story short, that uh, we now have five commissioners and also four commissioners, more importantly, who agree that uh, transmission you know, needs to essentially be revisited. And transmission is a uh, very important topic here in North Carolina. We heard a little bit about that this morning with the panel uh, moderated by Betsy of uh, Kairos, uh, especially with the growth of the offshore wind industry in North Carolina and utility scale solar in the eastern part of the state as well. And you also mentioned a little bit about uh, just kind of global energy politics. We'll talk a little bit about that in, in a minute as well. Um, so for Elizabeth, uh, an area that's captured a lot of attention in the solar sector in North Carolina recently and across the country is net metering. As probably most folks in the room know, uh, Duke, along with a number of solar advocates, entered into a settlement agreement uh, the end of November regarding the future of net metering and compensation for rooftop customers in the state. Uh, can you give us the rundown of the latest of what's going on with this proposal, what it means for North Carolina customers, and the likelihood of it to move forward? Having me make predictions, man. Um, yeah, I think first, just to start as background, for about a decade, utilities around the country have uh, been concerned about net metering schemes because it kind of undermines their basic business model. Under net metering, as I think folks know, um, if you own a rooftop solar array, you get credit on your bill that's essentially equal to the retail rate. The schemes vary from state to state, but that's basically how it works. So for a utility that is um, modeled upon buying a product at, at wholesale and then selling it at retail, that doesn't work so well for them. Um, and so we've seen around the country proposals to change those net metering schemes to make them, uh, to, to charge solar customers more, usually flat fees or standby charges, and then to reimburse them less for the solar, solar energy they create. Um, Matt, you mentioned the groups that entered into agreement with Duke, and, and Duke as well, wanted to avoid some of these knockdown, drag out battles that have happened in other states, and so they entered in, into this settlement agreement. And then one piece of background before I get into that is that uh, there was also a, a 2017 law, House Bill 589, again, we like to use those numbers, um, that said that the current net metering scheme is going to definitely phase out by 2027. So the current scheme in North Carolina is, again, basically you get a retail rate. It zeroes out at the end of May, but otherwise it's a, you know, it's a pretty, decent, um, pretty decent program for rooftop solar customers. Um, so again, in terms of the um, settlement agreement that was made, uh, some in the industry as well as advocates um, decided to, to change the scheme so that it would be a time of use um, uh, instead of always getting the same credit back on your bill, you would, you would get um, less during off-peak hours and more during on-peak hours. Um, you would also pay more for electricity uh, during on-peak hours and, and less during off-peak hours. And so the um, the, the hope and the theory is that um, solar panel customers who um, really pay attention to how they're, to, to when they charge their EVs and, and how they use their electricity, they'll be able to come out about as well as, as rooftop solar 
customers do now. Um, that's the hope. Um, the, uh, the concern, though, from rooftop solar customers and some climate justice advocates is that rooftop solar customers are, are not going to be that mindful of their energy use, and they're not going to be able to um, manage this on-peak, off-peak um, situation all that well. And so some rooftop solar companies, the installers, um, are, uh, have come out opposed to the program, and they think that um, rooftop solar panel owners are going to lose about 30% of the value of their panels. Where is this all going to end up? Well, I, uh, the, a couple of other um, sort of factors to think about here is that the Attorney General has also weighed in uh, and in, in, in some part sided with the rooftop solar customers who have pointed out that the 2017 law requires a study of the cost and benefits of rooftop solar before any changes to the net metering tariff is made. Um, it doesn't seem that that, Duke has done some analysis, but there hasn't been a public study of the cost and benefit that has been overseen by the commission. And so there's some argument that that aspect, that study aspect of the law needs to, to be fulfilled before there's any change to the net metering tariff. Again, the attorney general has, has basically made that case. Um, and has also made the case that, given that we're trying to develop this carbon plan and figure out how to reduce carbon emissions 70%, better to wait until after that carbon plan is, is um, finalized before um, making a decision about the future of net metering. Again, what will happen? I don't know. I feel like 2027, for some rooftop companies and for some in the solar industry, that's right around the corner. And so that's why they wanted to you know, figure this out um, ASAP and why they um, signed the agreement and forged the agreement with Duke. I think for the rooftop solar companies who don't like this proposal, they think, yeah, we still have time. Let's not rush into this. Let's um, study it first. Have no idea what the commission will decide, but they do have a lot on their plate. And so I wouldn't be shocked if it were punted to next year, but I have no idea. Just before this, this session, uh, there was a panel specific to net metering in which we heard from Juan Hero with Duke, and we heard from Will Giese of uh, SIA as well that dove into the specifics, and, and Stu Miller of Yes Solar Solutions and Casey Collins of, of Duke University, uh, where we dove into the specifics of that, that specific settlement agreement. So I believe that session was recorded, and you'll be able to view it afterwards if you're very interested to, to find out what the specifics look like. All right, uh, so for David. An important area to talk about is the role of cities in ushering in the clean energy future, especially in the light of the recent IPCC report that emphasized the need for cities to accelerate uh, adoption efforts like energy efficiency and additional clean energy uh, deployments. So can you talk a little bit more about some of the progress that's been made by North Carolina municipalities in driving forward clean energy? Yeah, definitely. Um, I've been following this for a few years now, and going back to the period after the Paris Agreement, uh, a lot of municipalities and counties and state governments, uh, if you remember, the climate was a little different then. Uh, North Carolina was not really, uh, as a state, uh, ready to adopt any kind of a statewide policy uh, that would address climate change, and so many mayors and county managers and uh, folks um, were getting their own policies together. And, you know, policies are broad. Execution is really the main thing here, and it's the most difficult. Um, 
But I will say that um, my surveys, and, and I'm not quite up to date on this, so there may be more, but we had pledges by 15 North Carolina mayors to uphold the Paris Agreement uh, during that time period. There's also at least two dozen cities and counties that have climate goals or climate action plans, that sort of thing. Um, and these are um, all, you know, people recognizing at the local level that it really falls to us. And, you know, we need policies and analysis of all this, but then we need funding for this, and then we need uh, actually to put all of these policies into place. And that means um, execution. It means procurement of uh, whatever energy source or vehicles or all that sort of thing. And, you know, that gets really complicated really fast. And uh, in, from my reporting, I can see that many cities across the Carolinas and county governments have actually appointed new staffs whose job it is to keep track of this. And so that is one sign of progress, I think, Matt, is that we have people in local governments who do this. Um, you know, Charlotte and Raleigh both have um, ambitious goals for uh, both their own local government uh, uh, energy use as well as the broader community, and that's, that's a divide there. Um, you know, they both have goals for reducing their carbon emissions to net zero at, uh, eventually, and that would be from city buildings, city vehicles, that sort of thing. And then they have broader goals for the community. Um, I think in both cases it works out to be something like um, reducing carbon emissions across the community by 80% by 2050. And uh, in Charlotte's case, they've actually adopted a number which is around carbon per person, per capita carbon emissions. Uh, in 2019, the average Charlottean was emitting 11 tons of carbon per year, and their goal is to get to two, which is a really small number. And that goes to everything that we do. It means what do you do in your household? What do you drive? How do you get around? Um, every little detail, and uh, my sense about this is that the, the city governments are, are moving along as best they can uh, at, at changing their own way of doing things, but for the rest of us, I'm not sure everybody gets it yet. I think we're still working on that, and um, and the city officials that I've talked to uh, have said the same thing. They, they think the hardest part will be getting individuals and companies to do it. Now, I think on the, on the corporate side, the largest companies in our communities are really on board with this. In fact, I think they're in some ways leading the ways. I mean, pick out a Fortune 500 company, and if it doesn't have a sustainability plan, you know, I'm not sure how long they're going to be around. It's something that uh, the SEC now says they're looking at. So that, that's really important. But even medium-sized companies in our community are, are doing things at least to pay some lip service. Now, it may be greenwashing, but they are, they are doing things like, you know, adopting electric vehicles or doing projects that, that really address this. Um, but I, I think the, the push comes to shove by 2050 is going to be when we really change the way we do things. Um, I do want to single out one community that I've written about, which is the town of Boone, my friends from Appalachian State here. Uh, Boone had an opportunity this year to do something that no other municipality in North Carolina has done, and that is transition their electric to completely renewable. And they did that because of a confluence of factors that um, contracts were coming due, uh, electricity suppliers were um, bringing online some new renewables, and so they had a chance to rejigger everything in a way that required just a $60,000 expenditure by the town board um, back in the uh, beginning of the year that would pay for uh, an additional charge for renewable electricity for the, the rest of the fiscal year. So they're through July 1st, and of course they will continue that going forward. But what happened was the two electric companies that the town of Boone uses, uh, both were able to bring on some new renewable energy. In one case it was a series of hydroelectric dams from a private provider, um, 
and in another case, it was a solar farm. And so uh, that has made a huge difference for them. They've actually been able to flip the switch and say, we are 100% renewable. And as far as I can tell, there is nobody else who's been able to do that yet. I mean, think if a Charlotte or a Raleigh was able to do that. Um, that would be incredible. Um, and, you know, it's a milestone. Um, one of the partners in all of this is Appalachian State University as well, and App State is doing this for itself. Um, and they are, uh, the last time I checked, they, they had 18% renewables in their mix, and that number is going up uh, at a pretty good rate. So I think they're, they're actually able to do this. Um, just to give you an idea of what a big city faces, Charlotte has its strategic energy action plan, and they just came out with a, a year three update on that. And they have identified through projects in the pipeline, uh, through changes that are coming at Duke Energy, um, they also are a member of the Duke Energy Green Source Advantage Program, which allows businesses or institutions and communities to work with a third-party uh, renewable energy provider. And so in the case of Charlotte, there's a private party is building a solar farm in Statesville, North Carolina, in Iredell County, just north of Charlotte. And uh, that's that's actually a little bogged down at the moment, but it's, it's happening. And eventually, uh, they will bring on uh, something that's about 18% of Charlotte's energy needs will be uh, covered by that solar farm. But when they add up all the sources and all the things that are coming down the pipeline, there's still a, about an 18 to 20% gap that they need to fill. How do they uh, get renewable energy or zero carbon energy for that last piece of it? And when you start executing these plans, it really comes down to looking at that spreadsheet and like, okay, how do we do this? And it's probably going to mean uh, maybe uh, you know some other kind of solar farm, more solar panels on their buildings, that sort of thing. But uh, it is happening, and I think there's a uh, reason for hope here. Thanks, David. And and I'll also add, you know, we've seen some really significant strides made in places like Asheville, uh, who had a who procured a significant amount of solar to be placed on uh, municipal owned uh, buildings and facilities. I know we've got a couple of friends in the audience here who have helped to make that possible. Uh, we've also seen other cities like the city of Raleigh make really significant strides in deploying electric vehicles and fleet electrification as well. Um, so a lot of great work happening uh, within municipalities across the state, but as you alluded to, a lot more to go. Um, so moving on to another question here, one area that's especially important to talk about is the consideration of low and moderate income communities in the clean energy transition. I think it's something that we all are aware of that we need to make sure we're considering as we have these conversations. So from your reporting over the past year, uh, what efforts are being made to ensure the energy economy is being inclusive of some of our most vulnerable frontline communities? And I'll tee this up to anybody who would like to start first. Yeah, I, I can start. I mean, I think, um, as I think many in this room know, one of the big concerns about House Bill 951 was that it didn't do much to lower the energy burden for those who struggle to um, pay their utility bills, who pay more than 6% of the, their income on um, lighting, heating, cooling their homes. Um, and that the the fact that it did little to lower that energy burden and it also presented the possibility of higher rates had had many organizations um, come out against the bill and and a not insignificant number of Democrats voted against the bill for that reason um, anyway so that being said there is however a, a working group that is has been initiated by the Utilities Commission that includes Duke and a number of stakeholders to try and figure out how can um, the rate structure be reformed how can 
um, do perhaps um, take a cue from folks like Roanoke um, uh, EMC in, in having um, uh, rates that better enable um, uh, poor people to, to pay their bills. So that, that working group is out there and there are recommendations that are due, I believe, in August and um, certainly last year in the debate over 951, there are plenty of promises made by legislators to take those recommendations to heart and, and try and come back and, and do something with them. We'll see, we'll see if that happens. Um, short of uh, reforming the rate structure and really systemic reforms that can be a you know, long-term solution for the energy burdened, there's of course just cash money. Um, and that is um, through federal weatherization and, and um, heating and assistance, um, it's called LEAP and weatherization. Anyway, there's federal programs that both um, assist people in, in just paying their bills if they get behind, but also on weatherizing their homes so that they can lower their electricity use for the long term. And um, North Carolina has been spending about $15 million um, per year on weatherization, um, but is about to get a huge injection of funds just for weatherization to the tune of $90 million. Um, and so, you know, That'll be, a, I'm sure, a needed boost for um, all the agencies working around the state to help people weatherize, but you know, also a challenge to try and figure out how to ramp up and, and scale up in order to be able to deploy that effectively. Yeah, I just, uh, I guess what I would add to that is, you know, at the, at the federal level and also kind of on a state-by-state -state level, I think there's also a growing awareness of uh, how to better, how how fossil fuel siting, uh, you know, has uh, historically negatively impacted a lot of those communities. And I think that there's a growing awareness as uh, mostly state level policies are being developed since uh, federal policies aren't really going anywhere right now, um, that, that, you know, it's not just carbon emissions that we're thinking about. It's how do we build economic in incentives for communities and how do, we, how do we target renewables growth in a state and how do we think about, you know, uh, local pollutants and, you know, not just the carbon emissions, but the, the local pollutants um, from a lot of coal plants and, and relieving some of those burdens. Um, so I think I, I did some reporting recently on how that seems to have been a growing awareness at, at the state legislative level that we, you know, we can't just uh, lower carbon emissions through a carbon price, for instance. We need to make sure that we're also thinking about the people and, and how these policies are impacting them couple of quick thoughts. Um, you know, a couple of areas that I see being worked on are both solar and also electric vehicle charging. And um, I did a story recently about uh, some federal grants that were coming down through the state and going to um, organizations in both North and South Carolina to pay for solar panels on buildings for communities, uh, nonprofit organizations, that sort of thing, especially in areas, not non urban areas. And so I think that's really a critical piece on this, and there's more to that to come. And I think many policymakers understand that we can't just be doing these projects in, um, you know, big urban areas. They've got to go across the state. And then as far as electric vehicle charging, same thing. You know, if you look at a map of where the charging stations are right now in the Carolinas, um, you know, they're along the major interstates. They're clustered around the big cities. They're where people need to go. But we need these to be in areas where we might not think of that as an electric vehicle area. Um, this is just a little side story, but I covered an electric vehicle charging station opening 
in Charlotte. This is something we do now. We used to write about when somebody had a new website. Now we have, we got our electric vehicle charging station. But the governor was there and the mayor of Charlotte, and it was in the west side of Charlotte neighborhood. And uh, it was a public-private partnership between UNC Charlotte and the city and Duke Energy. And it was kind of a big deal. It was done at, you know, there was no dollar figure put on it. A lot of it was in kind, you know, we're going to just make this thing happen to show that we can do this. But it's also in an, an area of Charlotte that has some of the worst air pollution. And so, you know, the idea is that this, at least the city leaders and the state leaders envision that this will be a neighborhood where people have electric cars too, even if that is not a realistic possibility right now. There was some blowback, like, nobody here has electric cars, we don't need this. Um, I did talk to a couple of community leaders and their thing was, this is fine, um, we may have, you know, people, the mayor said, we should be careful about what we assume about who has electric cars. There may be somebody who has one that doesn't fit our, our thinking about that. Um, but there's, the community leaders are also concerned that alongside of this comes uh, bus lines and transit and you know electrified transit, that sort of thing. And in Charlotte, that neighborhood is now um, partially served by a new streetcar line. Um, and there are bus corridors there that are really important. And the city has said that they will put their new electric buses on the, the corridors where we have the lowest incomes and people of color. And, they're concentrating it there first because that's where the health issues are the biggest. So I, I see some of that happening. In turning conventional wisdom on its head a little bit, uh, one of the companies that I had a chance to interview on the podcast recently was Arrival. And uh, one of their future product offerings is going to be a rideshare vehicle designed to provide employment opportunities for low and moderate income communities. So uh, additional sort of ideas or opportunities or reasons to cite uh, EV chargers in some of these non-traditional areas. I also just wanted to um, highlight quickly the Clean Energy Youth Apprenticeship Program um, that my understanding is it's sort of first of its kind in the country, part um, allowing high school students to um, partner with the community college in their area. This is happening primarily centered in Halifax County. Um, partnered with the community college to not only get skills to um, work in the solar industry and other renewable energy industries, um, but then potentially to be able to kind of stack some of those skills and work toward a, um, a two-year or even a four-year degree. And I think the, the Halifax example is, is so cool because, as was mentioned uh, this morning, that's in eastern North Carolina, that's where most of the um, large-scale solar development is right now, and I, I spoke with the superintendent of um, Halifax Public Schools and um, this guy, Dr. Eric Cunningham, who really helped to pioneer and, and create this program, and, you know, he said, I wanted our kids to get involved in clean energy because it's all around us. The solar farms are everywhere. So I, that, I thought, really crystallized um, how important it is not only to, to have rural North Carolina be the place where... Um, you know, workers are coming from outside their area to, to build these solar farms, but really be able to, to train the folks who, who live there in those industries as well. Uh, so before I ask this next question, uh, if folks in the audience do have questions for the journalists joining us on the panel, uh, again, I'd encourage you to uh, join us at the mics that are about halfway back in the room against the walls on either side. We might have time for one or two questions. Uh, so feel free, if you would like to ask them questions, to direct yourself that way, uh, and we'll get to those after this next qu question for Catherine. So uh, in light of everything taking place right now in Eastern Europe, 
which aside from the, the human atrocities taking place, has also highlighted vulnerabilities associated with current dependence on energy sources from places like Russia. Um, so how is the federal government and FERC approaching energy and our future generation mix with all of these developments happening right now? Yeah, I think I, I definitely don't envy the Biden administration right now. I think the federal government has to take, it's a very difficult position because the Biden administration obviously campaigned on uh, clean energy and now they're basically telling you know, a lot of these oil companies to increase production. And that's obviously their, kind of their very short-term solution, but I think it's frustrated a lot of uh, folks in the clean energy industry who argue, you know, rightly so, that, that there is a very clear argument to be made that if we, you know, kind of wean off oil and fossil fuel uh, development and, and just our reliance on it and, and kind of go more toward cleaner energy and domestic clean energy, then, you know, maybe we won't have to deal with these really volatile fossil, fuel, uh, fossil fuels. Um, I think that there is definitely some frustration as to whether the Biden administration has done a good job um, with that messaging. And for FERC, it's, it's uh, definitely had the effect of, you know, I, making their pipeline policy, for instance, really difficult to get through. I think a lot of the blowback they saw on their pipeline policy was directly related to, well, why are you making pipelines more difficult to permit right now when we need to increase domestic production? And, you know, it's a little bit, those two things aren't exactly linked, but at the same time, politically, it's, it's difficult for FERC. So I think the Biden, long story short, I think the Biden administration is in a difficult position, and I think there's absolutely an argument to be made for, you know, this is why we should boost clean energy production, but it's a question of whether they're, they're able to, to get that message across. And I see we have some folks lining up the microphone, so I want to make sure we allocate some time for audience Q&A. So I would invite the uh, first person in line to uh, direct your question at the panel here. Hello, my name is McKenna Dunbar from Sierra Club and Ecological Justice Initiative. In your journalistic lens, what is the role of environmental justice and grassroots organizing and reshaping the future of the net zero carbon economy? Um, I, I think the thing that I have um, come across most in my reporting is this, this idea of, of energy democracy and the, I think the environmental justice and the energy justice communities have played an important role in um, working to kind of counterbalance the uh, sort of centralized, you know, we, we, have a, we have a monopoly utility. I don't think most people expect that to go away anytime soon, but um, to, to pull against that model and, and press against it as much as possible to open up, uh, to encourage decision makers to think about um, distributed energy such as rooftop um, panels um, as, as one example as we were talking about with net metering. So there's that kind of piece of, of energy, of environmental justice organizing and, and pulling on the sort of just the production of the energy side. And then, you know, David mentioned wood pellets earlier. I think there have, has been a lot of, of organizing among the, the communities that are in the places where these wood pellet plants are, uh, pointing out the, the negative impacts um, those communities have, have experienced and seen because of, of those plants. I think that's, that's been an important piece of the debate um, and, and 
putting another lens on on um, on wood pellet production and and same I know we have I think it's tomorrow at the conference there's going to be a lot of talk about renewable natural gas um, I think in my own reporting I initially saw that as sort of wow this is a win-win like capture the methane um, have it displace uh, carbon but I think the environmental justice community has done um, an important job of raising questions about how how communities are are impacted by um, renewable natural gas uh, facilities and the development and and what that could mean for the future of the um, hog industry in North Carolina. Let me just piggyback on there and say that, you know, when we start new industries or we grow existing industries in this country, we typically have looked at some big numbers about uh, the billions of dollars of investment. We've looked at the number of jobs created. And and jobs are, not, not to belittle it, jobs are definitely part of the economic justice and uh, side of things. But I, I see more and more nowadays when these things are happening that we are paying more attention to the environmental and climate justice aspects. And I've done a lot of reporting on wood pellets. Um, Celeste Gracia from WUNC and I did a series of stories earlier this year uh, called The Wood Energy Dilemma, and you can look those up on our websites, um, looking at communities in North Carolina that are affected by these plants. And as you might expect, almost all of them are lo located in uh, low-income communities of color. And uh, but there is also now an infrastructure emerging to help those communities. It's expertise that comes from both within the state and outside the state in looking at these, helping do the analysis, the, the science that needs to be done about air quality emissions and that sort of thing, and that is all happening now. Um, as reporters, I think it needs to be part of our job description. You know, um, environmental justice and climate justice, it has to be in there. We can't just look at it uh, one way. So. Thank you. All Thank right. You. Hello, I'm Michael Wood. I run an energy podcast called Energy Terminal, so great to see some podcast representation out here. And quick shout out, y'all go check it out. Um, I'm a Duke student, so I work with a lot of other students who have great ideas, perspectives on energy transition, but don't necessarily feel like they have the authority or the voice to be able to share these opinions. So uh, I was wondering, as media professionals, what are some ways students can get their opinions heard on this topic that is the defining challenge and also defining opportunity of our generation. Uh, I actually run across all kinds of groups that have been organized, some of them in the last few years, some of them that have been here for a while. I mean, certainly there are established organizations like the Sierra Club, but there are a lot of um, youth-oriented groups that are looking at this, and they're you know, they're doing things like uh, standing outside the home of Senator Tom Tillis and demanding that he do something about environmental and climate issues or, uh, you know, staging festivals, that sort of thing. Um, there are, I know there are groups in Charlotte and the Raleigh-Durham area here. Um, you know, my friends can help me with what those are. But, um, you know, it, there's definitely a way to get involved. I think another way to get involved, and this is what I say to people who are like, oh, climate change, it's just, it makes me stay up at night, you know. And that is to, to do something that will make you feel like you're having an impact. And so um, number one is making sure you learn about it. So pick out some journalists to follow, podcasts to follow. Um, you know, that sort of thing, and, and get yourself knowledgeable, and what, you know, what grabs your attention? Like, see where that takes you, and, and follow along. I, I would also say that, um, I mean, this is kind of a obvious answer, maybe, but there's a ton that, that students can do just on their campus, and especially a, a 
not just especially Duke University, certainly also NC State and UNC Chapel Hill, and I'll uh, make sure to cover all my bases, but... Um, I'll take the especially Duke University. <laughs> <laughs> um, there, what um, major universities do matters, and the world pays attention, or the nation pays attention, and you know, I can think of two high-profile um, uh, decisions that Duke University made recently that were that were influenced by students. So they were there was a proposal to build a combined heat and power plant um, that was initially to be run on natural gas and then eventually renewable natural gas and then eventually that that plant got killed largely because of student involvement. Um, so that's one. And then the second is of course the I mean we haven't even gotten into this, but the whole debate over light rail between Chapel Hill and um, Durham uh, died for a number of reasons, but one reason was perhaps Duke University decided that they it didn't fit with their plans. And so that's an example of where I don't know if student activism could have made a difference or not. Um, but those, those are two things that come to mind of just there's a lot of difference students can make um, just by getting involved on what's happening on their campus. Uh, Margaret Lillard with the Sierra Club. Um, David, you touched on something that's of particular interest to me and has been for a long time, and that's the sustainability planning at the corporate level. Um, and dovetailing with something that's growing in interest on my horizon is the number of uh, crypto mining facilities that are looking to locate in North Carolina. And I'm just wondering if any of the three of you can shed some light on what may be holding them back from renewable energy, from creating their, their own energy sources? Uh, is it regulatory? Is it the lack of incentive, uh, the lack of awareness on their part of the economic benefits of pro producing their own energy? So I've, I've written, I think, one story about a crypto mining company that was actually coming to Greenville, Spartanburg area. Um, they were buying an existing plant and setting up there, um, and I know there are some in North Carolina as well that are, look, if not already in the works, that they're looking at existing facilities. I mean, these are companies, they're in the money business, they're not in the energy business. But we, I think, as a side effect of the environmental and climate movement, we look at them that way, and there have been enough stories about it nationally and, and beyond uh, that, that remind us that they're huge energy users. But as far as I know, most of these companies, they want to get the cheapest electricity they can. So if it means fossil fuels, it means fossil fuels. Now, there, uh, there is this one company that I have written about that they, on their website, it looks like an environmentalist website. Um, they're talking about how green they are. And that's a good thing. When any of these companies start talking about that, at least you know that they get it and they have to worry about it. And so if they can be persuaded to source from green sources, that that's fine. Um, I don't think we really have any kind of policy or regulatory structure in place that would affect this. I mean, right now, it's your county government has an economic development proposal for this Bitcoin mining, and it's going to create, you know, six jobs, and it's going to use more electricity than the entire county uses. And, you know, we don't really have anything in place that would allow us to think about what do we do with that? Do we care about that? You know, I think that's something that we need to look at, uh, not just at the local level, but at the state level. All right, so on that note, we are going to go ahead and wrap up our panel conversation today, but please join me in thanking each of our panelists for being up here and joining us for the live Squeaky Clean podcast episode.
my key takeaway from today's episode is the importance of journalism to elevating and covering the multidimensional field of clean energy. Over the years, we've seen newsrooms across the country face the hardships of a changing information consumption model, leading to layoffs and lost beats. But at the same time, we've seen increased attention and funding for reporters covering the fast-growing and ever-important clean energy sector. As David alluded to in his comments, some of his work and those at other outlets across the state are supported by grant funds to ensure that stories within our industry get the coverage they deserve. And these topics continue to elevate within the mindset of readers and viewers outside of our sector. Further, you heard on our last episode from Julian Spector with Canary Media, who also highlighted the importance of groups like the Rocky Mountain Institute to supporting the continuance of the amazing journalism stemming out of the group of reporters coming from Green Tech Media. With all that being said, it's incredibly motivating to see all of the support for journalists covering this beat, as it's only going to continue to grow in importance. So on that note, I'll use this reminder to support your local and industry-specific journalists by subscribing and reading their work, as it makes a difference in resource allocation moving forward. We'll be including links in today's show notes to each of the reporters we've featured and their writing. And you know the deal. Let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout at Matt Abel for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. And episode 68 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See y'all later.